Well, this being the, uh, the first Sunday of the new year, we started with reading our vision together at the call to worship. That vision was birthed out of the idea from Scripture that with Jesus' birth uh, so broke into our world the beginnings of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Way back before we ever had a public worship gathering, before our church was called Letter Streets Covenant Church, we didn't know what our name would be, before we had a place to meet other than many of your living rooms where we actually met and prayed, God gave us a life verse for this church. Um, in Hebrew, that word is zera, which means seed. So our zera verse, Letter Streets Covenant Church, is Mark 1. 14 and 15. And it goes like this. When John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand or has come near. Repent and believe in this good news. Now, I don't know why God gave us that verse in particular, but I have a hunch, and that's because the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, depending which gospel writer you read, is the subject that Jesus talks about most. And in fact, what's an interesting study, if you have spare time in your hands, would be to look at the sermons in the book of Acts and see what the point of many of those sermons is. It's Most of them you'll find are leading people to put their faith in the king who is Jesus. Kingdom. Through his birth, his teachings, his life, his death and resurrection, Jesus was constantly living out the fact that with his birth, so was also beginning the birth pangs of the kingdom of God breaking into our world. And he was calling people to follow him as the king of that kingdom. Okay? Dallas Willard described the kingdom of God like this. It is the realm where what God wants done is done. It is the effective range of God's will. All right? Another way of thinking about it is to consider God's ethics and His intent for the creation and all of that coming to be the norm on earth as it is in heaven. That would be another way of conceiving of the kingdom of God. But notice that Jesus never says the kingdom of God is exactly like A, B, and C. None of the apostles say the kingdom of God is, here's one sentence or one paragraph. Jesus, the Lord himself, talked about the kingdom in so many different ways, from direct teachings to parables to examples, that it shows us just how complex this kingdom of God concept really is. In fact, there's no way that a mere preacher like me is ever going to sum up the kingdom in one sentence or one sermon or one lifetime. Part of that I love. Because as a preacher, what I'm trying to do each week is to look at the scriptures and to present for us one aspect of the kingdom so that over a lifetime, over a whole book of the Bible, over a whole canon of scripture, we're getting more and more layers of what the kingdom is and it's soaking deeper and deeper into our lives. As a pastor, I'm committed to leading our congregation into participating in kingdom work as we're invited by the Holy Spirit. Proclaiming kingdom, leading us into kingdom activities. Boy, if I could do those two things well, I would be a happy, happy pastor. That being said, it's been 2,000 years, roughly, since Jesus' incarnation, since his birth, since the beginning of the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven. And after 2,000 years, let's just be honest, there could be some reason for discouragement. 
think about it. The kingdom of God began breaking in 2,000 years ago. What's wrong with this place? Is there something wrong with God's plan? Now, granted, there have been so many amazing things that have happened as a result of Jesus and his disciples and the kingdom of heaven breaking in. Uh, modern uh, hospitals, for example. I mean, th- this was started by disciples of Jesus. Monks who gathered up sick people in one place. We wouldn't have hospitals like we know them if it weren't uh, for the kingdom of heaven beginning to break in. Uh, Education, higher education, centers of learning. And the importance, the cultural value that everyone has a right to education. That's from the kingdom of heaven. That wasn't the norm in the world. Human rights, for heaven's sakes didn't really exist as a thing. It wasn't really a thing people talked about. People didn't have rights unless the king said they had rights. That is a kingdom of heaven type of concept. But even these massive improvements are flawed. I mean, let's face it, our education system is overpriced and our educators are underpaid. Our healthcare system is so politicized and so commercialized at this point, it's really hard to, to think healthcare and something from heaven in the same sentence, right? I mean, let's, it's complex, right? The term kingdom of God sounds so God-sized. I mean, after all, the God who spoke the universe into existence out of absolutely nothing, the God who created the complexity of our world. I mean, those of you who are into sciences always blow my mind more and more. I've been reading um, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, just finished it last week. If you like nature and God... Read that book. I mean, it's just fascinating. This woman, just her powers of observation, of seeing the glory of God in a praying mantis egg sac that bursts. I mean, there's all this amazing complexity. When you look all the way down to a molecular level, when you look at the mountains, uh, oh my goodness, the God who can think all that up. And that, what do we do? We merely can describe it, right? And we have theories about why things are the way they are. We can't even come close to understanding fully the magnitude of God's creation. So we would expect that the God who could do those things and create such a complex creation, if his kingdom were actually breaking into earth, wouldn't you think it would be more obvious than it is? More magnificent, more marvelous. The people in the first century had a problem with that concept too. And there they were, listening to Jesus um, uh, teach, experiencing Him preach, watching Him do things that, man, even exceeded the expectations of Messiah. No one walks on water, commands the sea to stop. God does those kinds of things. Messiah wasn't expected to be able to raise people like Lazarus from the dead. That's God kind of work. And yet at the same time, you've got Jesus doing all these amazing things, calling people to follow him as king of this new kingdom. And over here, yeah, but Rome is still in charge over us, Jesus. And Israel isn't exalted yet, so what's wrong here? And and, and the religious system is still corrupt at the top levels. There's confusion as to why things didn't look differently if... The kingdom was really breaking in. And so Jesus addresses their concerns. And I believe he addresses our concerns. And he does it through a parable. Through a story. And I want us to listen to what Jesus has to say through this parable tonight. I invite you to stand with me as we read this short parable. 
in Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. It's in the middle uh, of a larger teaching, uh, and he says this. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The last time we were in Matthew 13, looking at the parables of Jesus, was the end of July, right before I went on sabbatical. So, a slight review is in order. Parables are unique forms of teaching that uh, first century teachers like rabbis or like Jesus would often use to elicit a response from people. Parables are not just information about what that teacher wants to say. So when Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven, is he's not just trying to tell you stuff you didn't know about the kingdom of heaven. Parables always, always, always have one goal in mind. To elicit a response from the people hearing them. So I just want to, I'm kind of joking, but kind of serious, very serious actually. You could leave now if you want to, because every time a parable is presented, actually it's too late, I already read it, didn't I? Sorry about that. Every time a parable is presented, it demands a response, and no response is a response. Think about that as we continue to go. So we approach the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Let's pay attention to what Jesus is asking us to believe. What is he asking us to respond to? How is he trying to change the way we view the world and the way we view the kingdom? Because I guarantee that those things are going to rub tonight. All right. First of all, we have this parable that mentions a mustard seed. I'll read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man sowed in his field. It is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plant, all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The parable is not saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. These parables are similes, which means they try and describe one thing by comparing it to another thing that is common knowledge. Right? Similes use terms that focus on meaning rather than precise definition. So, for example, many of you have worshipped in this very building in those few summer days on a Sunday when it actually gets over 80 in Bellingham. And you will know quite well that none of these windows open. And so we have that door wide open with about 14 fans, it feels like, all these things going, people's music flying off the music stand, and we're still sweating. And there will be times when I will say, it feels as hot as an oven in here. Right Now when I say, it feels as hot in an oven, as an oven in here, I'm going for the meaning there. What I mean is, it is stinking hot. I don't mean, I'm setting the congregation for an hour and a half at 350, because we would be dead. It is really hot in here. Not literally as hot as an oven, 
maybe it's an easy bake oven though. I mean, it's really hot. So, um, focusing on the meaning of the simile is vital because we can really get hung up on the details. So, for example, a mustard seed is very small. It was probably a black mustard plant. I read about all this stuff. Wayne, I should have had you do all this because it's way more uh, agriculture than I was comfortable with. But anyway, <laughs> so it, 750 mustard seeds weigh about one gram. That's a tiny seed. But the mustard seed was not, is not the smallest seed in Israel. In fact, it was common knowledge that the orchid seed, for example, is much smaller than a mustard seed. So why does Jesus then say that the mustard seed is smaller than all the other seeds? It doesn't make any sense. If we get hung up on the details, it will throw us awry. Here's why. It was a common saying to say the mustard seed is smaller. So you might say, if you're trying to describe something small, uh, like comparing these two candles, man, that candle is so small size of a mustard seed. And everyone in the first century Palestine would know exactly what you meant. They don't think that you have no knowledge of seed sizes. And then, of course, the orchid seed is smaller. But it was just a colloquialism. It was a cliche. It was a, a, almost a proverbial statement. Small as a mustard seed would be the same thing as, as tight as a drum or you know, any other simile that is common in our culture. That's not the only problem with this saying, of course, if we look at it from an agricultural Wayne Youngquist point of view. The other issue, of course, is that mustard plants, even at their largest, and the type that Jesus is describing, get maybe 10, maybe 12 feet would be an enormous, if you put miracle grow on the mustard seed, the plant might get 10 to 12 feet, and it's more of a bush than a tree. And yet Jesus says it's the largest of the garden plants, fine, we'll give you that one, Jesus, but it's not a tree by any stretch of the imagination. And birds, little ones, might be able to perch on it and get shade under the leaves, but they are not building nests in a mustard bush. So what is going on here? Does Jesus need a Wayne Youngquist biology class? Well, that probably wouldn't hurt, but I don't think that's the point. And we're going to come back to that one in a little bit. But let's get back uh, to our simile first. I said the kingdom of heaven is not like a mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed, which being smaller than other seeds, grows to be the largest of garden plants. The emphasis in the parable is not on the seed size. It's not on the bush size. It's on the process. It's on the contrast between the small seed and the largest of garden plants. The kingdom of heaven is like something that seems so small and insignificant, but grows to something larger than anyone else would ever expect. Certainly larger than anything else around. And the same is true for the leaven parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour till it was all leavened. Now some people think Jesus is talking about yeast here. And yeast in the Bible often has a negative connotation. Think Passover, uh, you're supposed to get rid of all the yeast. And uh, in certain festivals, you're supposed to get all the yeast out of your house. Yeast sometimes has the connotation of impurity in Scripture. But leaven, the word used here, is not the same as yeast at all. You're making a batch of bread. You pull back some scraps of dough. You put it in the cupboard. You wait a few weeks. It begins to stink. It's fermented bread dough now. Next batch of bread, you put that leaven in the dough. You pull some back of that new dough. 
save it for next time, but the leaven in the dough causes it to rise and you repeat the process over and over. Think sourdough bread, kind of like that. Have you ever done that? There's also places in Scripture where leaven is offered in certain sacrifices to God. So leaven isn't always a bad thing. I don't think that that has any bearing on the parable here. So what is the point? Similar to the mustard seed analogy, three pecks of flour... I know that doesn't sound... Like when you think pecks, I think little... Pecks are actually good size. Three pecks of flour would make enough dough to feed a hundred people. A little bit of leaven hidden in three pecks of flour, enough to feed a hundred people, will leaven all of that dough. The kingdom of heaven is not like fermented dough in the stinky sense of the word. It's like a little bit of leaven hidden in three pecks of flour in that it starts looking small and insignificant, but it works through all of that dough to have a massive, massive impact. Why does Jesus give his hearers and us these two parables about mustard seed and leaven? I believe... He wants to encourage us. He wants to encourage you. He wants to encourage me. Think about his first hearers. Things did not look like what people expected. Jesus comes on the scene doing all of these kinds of things that Moses was doing. The people were waiting for a new exodus. Here comes this guy, Jesus, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God calling people to follow him. And what does he do first? He gets baptized. Like Moses parted the waters, Jesus comes out of the water. And then what does he do? He goes in the wilderness. How long? 40 days, like Moses led the people in the wilderness for 40 years. And then what does Jesus do? He goes up on a mountain like Moses went up on a mountain. Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments, but Jesus is a better Moses in that he gives the ethical commands. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was written. You have heard that it was said. But I say, Jesus has more authority than even Moses. The people must have been on the edges of their proverbial seats. Could this be the new deliverer? The one leading us to the new exodus? But here's the difference. Moses and the exodus was oh so decisive. He comes in with power doing these ten uh, plagues right before Moses. And then when when Pharaoh chases Moses and the people down, God causes the sea to crash and wash up their army. It is so decisive when uh, that exodus happens. But Jesus, in this new exodus, this, uh, this kingdom of God thing, is not like that at all. There's no decisive turning point. Rome has not been crushed. The temple has not been uh, completely restored. There, things are still a mess. Maybe Jesus wasn't worth listening to. Maybe he was wrong. And that's where the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven come in. Jesus is telling them, you're right to seek the kingdom of God. You are right to follow me as the king of that kingdom, but you're mistaken in how the kingdom will come and what breaking in the breaking in of the kingdom will look like. You're wrong about that part. The kingdom will start small. It will seem backwards, insignificant, not worthy of news headlines. But it's going to exceed your imaginations. And I think if we're really honest, 
We struggle with the same sorts of attitudes as those first hearers of Jesus. It's not that we despise small things, by the way. I think we actually respect small things if the circumstances are right, and I think there's two. One is we respect small, powerful things, don't we? The smashing of an atom, that's something to respect. Um, Many of you, like myself, have encountered this recent stomach bug, right? I respect this microscopic creature that can render an adult gastrointestinal system uncontrollable. I will just leave it at that. But that is some powerful little thing. I don't despise that little beginning there, okay? Um, we, we, also respect, <laughs> we also respect small beginnings as long as they turn out successful. I mean, that's the American dream. I mean, how many of us love the story of some kid from backwoods Kentucky who gets his banjo and he goes to American Idol and wins the whole thing, signs the multi-million dollar record deal, and oh my gosh, we love those kind of stories. You know what we don't love so much, what you don't hear about, is when that dude crashes and burns in the first round or the second round or the third round, they go into obscurity. And that's most of us. That's most of us. Most of us will not be in the headlines unless we're into some kind of scandal or we do some big, some big showy thing. Um, we have unrealistic expectations of the kingdom. And I think we have unrealistic expectations in two main directions. First, our expectations... And this is a generalization. You might sit there and say, this isn't me. I don't know what you're talking about, but go with me here. In general, our expectations are too focused on our present situation. We are living in a world that tells us it is our right to have what we want, when we want it. Instant gratification. And even those that have a good work ethic that start on the bottom tier of a company or start saving at a young age, we still expect that those investments, that that sweat and blood and tears will equal success in our lifetime. We expect that that is our right. And sometimes churches have reflected this insecurity, this needing to feel significant by the world standards. So what does success look like? What do people in your family ask about your church when they're not believers? Is it growing? Is it big? What's your website look like? Keith, it looks great, by the way. Keith does our website. Um, Large crowds, large crowds of people making confessions for Christ, even though it doesn't, they don't necessarily know what following Christ looks like. Is success getting on the news on a regular basis, having enough followers on your Twitter account, you know, all of these kind of things. Is that success? I'm going to set you up for this next one. I think that if we were to have a conversation and I say, do you expect these following things? You'd probably say to my face, no. And I would say to you, no. I don't expect that, not in the real world. I think at a deeper level, listen to the following things, I think we'd be disappointed. Do we expect, would we be disappointed if these things didn't happen? Do we expect our lives to be, for the most part, healthy, happy, put together, Confident, financially secure? Do we expect 
that God will show us the career path He's made us for and give us a job in that career path? Do we expect a spouse that will meet all of our needs? Oh, and of course, lots of kids if we want them. And of course, if we have them, they're going to be well behaved. We expect those things. Do we expect that because the kingdom of God began breaking in with Jesus, that the world would suddenly start voting a certain way, that the Christ would be put back in Christmas by next year, that the world should be getting better? Do we kind of expect that and we're disappointed when time and time again those expectations aren't met? The parable of the mustard seed and leaven challenges our assumptions and misplaced hope that the kingdom of God breaking in means that the world should progressively be getting better. These parables tell us that until Jesus returns, till he reappears, bringing his kingdom in full, that the kingdom on earth will appear, will appear insignificant and small like a mustard seed. And leaven. It is not flashy. It is not defined by the world's definition of success. We are not called to build the kingdom of God. You should never hear me pray that prayer. Lord, help us to build the kingdom. We are not called to build the kingdom of God. That's God's job. What we as disciples are called to do is reflect the kingdom of God. To reflect the kingdom of God. We are called out, ecclesia, called out ones. We are called out to be the church, as the church, to live and reflect the kingdom values. We are to live in such a way that we full-heartedly Believe that the kingdom is already here in full, even though it's not here in full. And that will make us look stupid and unwise to the world. Why would we forgive? Why would we turn the other cheek? Why would we not hoard all the things for ourselves? Why would we be so generous? That is stupid in the world's economy. Yes, it is. And Paul himself even said, Hey, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then everything we're doing is... We're the biggest fools in the world. That's the call. We don't build the kingdom, but we live as though the kingdom were fully here. That's the call. Foolishness in the world's eyes. Living life in the kingdom of heaven before he comes back. Right? Living that kind of life is not a life of quick fixes and instant gratification. It is a life of slow and steady one foot in the other one foot after the other faithfulness to Jesus each generation you ever wonder why okay you've got a generation of followers of Jesus things should be better for the next one right and then better for the next one and better for the next one we should be more Jesus-y but it doesn't seem to be that way the, the world is just as screwed up as when my parents were my age and my grandparents were my age it's just different maybe technology and stuff like that is different but it's the same problems Sometimes my, my grandmother, who's this Southern Baptist from Kentucky, she oh, the world is so much worse than it was. No, it's not. It's not worse. It's just different worse. It's just more out there, maybe. Each generation has to start being faithful 
with the little things, the mustard seed and leaven faith. Each generation has an opportunity to be faithful, to engage, to see that maybe the most important kingdom work of reflecting Jesus is it's just with the regular old people in your life every week and every day. It's not necessarily glamorous, but your investment in family and friends and coworkers, in your local community, in the world scene, all of that in the name and power of Jesus, that is kingdom work. That's kingdom of heaven stuff. Which leads me to the second way we have unrealistic expectations about the kingdom. After I just said all that stuff, I think that we think the kingdom is smaller and less significant than it really is. We think that the mustard seed and leaven kingdom is small and insignificant. That it can't really change much at all until Jesus finally just comes and does it all himself. But that's all in our skewed perspective. If Jesus uses you to influence, to better one person's life, to introduce one person to Jesus, to help set one person free from poverty or ignorance or disease or slavery... Slavery in the the most real sense of the word, slavery to emotional bondage, slavery to all kinds of addictions. If he uses you to help one person break free from those things, then he has used you to do the work of the kingdom, the work of the Savior. And I bet you right now, as I've said those things, you have been a part of somebody's process, which means, don't shrug that off, you have been a part of kingdom of God stuff. Yeah, but it doesn't seem that important. It's lost its luster. That's your problem. I'm telling you that that's the good news. That you and I are part of kingdom work when we're part of the little things of life. Loving one person well means loving one person who is made in the image of the living God. Oh. When you love someone, you love God. We're fooled into thinking that to get things done in our world, we need two things, three things. Power, influence, money. That's the way the world system works. A lot of times, God will use those things too. But His kingdom is not dependent. That's the key. His kingdom and His work is not dependent on money and influence and power. That's why, you know, I just did this sabbatical in Iona, so I'm going to give this example. That's why a dude named Columba in 563 took 12 ragtag monk disciples. By the way, Columba was a prince. He was in line to be a chieftain, a king of his land in Ireland. He denounced that, goes to school, becomes a monk, has 12 disciples. They get in a coracle. That is a leather bottom boat without a rudder, has a square sail, and these dudes would get into the Irish Sea and say, all right, wherever the Spirit leads us, there's no way to steer those dang things. So he ends up on this Scottish Isle of Iona, three and a half miles long by a mile and a half wide. And 13 men who are not powerful or wealthy or influential because they're obedient to God, educate all of those people in the Isles in Scotland changed the face of the UK 
as it was for centuries and centuries and centuries, bringing the gospel to different chieftains and uh, picks and scouts. Oh, it's amazing. Those people didn't have money and influence and power. They had obedience to Jesus. That's how the kingdom works. We are like leaven hidden in the massive world of dough. We may seem insignificant. We might even get lost in our work. Most of us do. We may not live to see the result. Most of us won't. But the results are more than we can possibly imagine. This parable is telling you and me, and it's been telling me all week because I've been studying it, so that's why I'm so excited, but I'm telling you now, it is saying, wake up! Things are not as they seem. Don't despise the work God calls you to, even if it seems insignificant to the world. Don't you see? Obedience to Jesus, doing His kingdom work, will change the world. It says that the mustard seed will become a great tree such that the birds of the air come to nest in its branches. As I said earlier, that doesn't make biological sense. That doesn't happen in real life. No birds make their nests in a mustard bush. Jesus must have been wrong, maybe. Uh, he must not know his mustard plants. But that's hard to believe because mustard plants are about as common as sagebrush. I mean, it's, they're just everywhere. All right, did I say sagebrush? I meant scotch broom. Sorry, we're in the West. West Coast. Maybe Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. And he uses this common bush that everyone knows doesn't have nesting birds in it. So that people would say, hey, wait a minute. Birds don't nest in mustard bushes, but what is he talking about? The prophet Ezekiel wrote of a time when God would raise up Israel and a mighty cedar tree. Oh, maybe not the most stately tree in Palestine, but certainly the tallest. God would put this mighty cedar tree, symbol of sturdiness and power and glory. Oh, he's going to put it near the temple mount. And it's going to rise up and all the birds of the world, meaning all the nations, would come and make their nest in it and find their life in it and have their shade in it and have community under it. Basically, he's going to draw all the nations to himself with the glory and the might of God through a glorious and mighty Israel. And I think what Jesus is doing here by talking about this mustard tree that's not a tree at all and birds nesting in it, which they don't do at all, is he's saying, guess what I'm doing for you? I'm redefining what you think glory and holiness and power are. It's not going to happen by destroying all your enemies, Israel. It's not going to happen by making you so special that people are going to flock to you. It's going to happen through the cross. It's going to happen in the most mustard seed and leavening kind of way. The God of the universe is going to die so that the nations could come nest in a bush. So that you and I could come find life in Jesus. How embarrassing our gospel is. Think about it. I mean, Ryan has to deal with this all the time. You chair of philosophy at Western. How embarrassing really is the gospel of Jesus when you line it up with the philosophies of the world, the ancient libraries so majestic, the clean and efficient technological saviors that we have. 
in a, in a world of political messiahs, Jesus' cross, come on. What a lame religion. Even in the first century, Paul had to write apologetics. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though it's kind of shameful to talk about. It's a God who gets killed on a cross, right? And yet, that is the very point of this parable. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. It, it, it's to put our faith in the one who hung on the cross and, of course, rose again. It's to pick up our crosses to engage in the unglamorous work of the small things. The work of small beginnings. Only to discover that we have actually found true life and eternal life. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. The parable is good news for you and me. Because when we trust Jesus the King, what seems like small beginnings will lead us to more life than we ever thought possible. And we don't have to be fancy and sophisticated. This is gospel for everyone, which means it's a gospel for me and a gospel for you. Amen? Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for this word of encouragement. Help us, Lord. Help us not to be ashamed of this gospel, this pedestrian gospel, this gospel of shabby bushes and dying gods and um, accessibility to everyone. Lord, help us to embrace it as good news. Help us to rejoice in the fact The God who's willing to die for us also rose for us that we could have new life. Help us to rejoice in the fact that what seems small and insignificant, the things that you've called us to invest in, even though they're not often flashy, oh Lord, they're good. And they do bring new life. And they bring us life. Lord, I pray for those who are discouraged who maybe don't see how their life is making much of a difference. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be mustard seed and leaven in our hearts. That it would work its way through our doubts and our discouragements. Hmm. And it would bring new life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.